0: Check out my new book, Reach All Readers, at reachallreaders.com. When you pre-order, you'll get special access to my Science of Reading mini-course. Learn more at reachallreaders.com. Hello, this is Anna Geiger from The Measured Mom, and in this episode, I had the privilege of interviewing Dr. Deb Glazer. She is the creator of the Reading Teacher's Top 10 Tools, which is an excellent training for teachers who want to learn about the science of reading. She's the author of multiple books and some curricula for teaching morphology, which we'll be talking about in detail today. I have admired Dr. Glazer's work for a long time, particularly her morphology work. And so I'd reached out to her several times through a contact form and didn't hear back, but I didn't give up. When I was in New York this October for the Reading League conference, I was walking down the street with my friends looking for a restaurant and there was Dr. Glazer walking all by herself. And so I said, well, hello, Deb Glazer, because of course I recognized her and she was very nice. And I gave her my business card and she noted that it was nice and thick, which I do on purpose so that people are less likely to throw it away, and told her I'd love to have her on the podcast. And so when I got home, I was able to find an email address for her. And then we were able to schedule this interview. So I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I'm sure that you will too. Welcome, Dr. Glazer.
1: Thank you, Anna. I am so excited to be here with you today.
0: I am so happy that I tracked you down because um, so many people have wanted to talk about morphology on the podcast or want to hear something about morphology, and I knew that you were the one that I would love to talk to about it because of the wonderful work you've done in the curricula that you've published. Could you introduce us first to yourself, maybe tell start by telling us how you got into education?
1: Oh sure well, it's been a number of years, and I was very fortunate in the beginning of my career to work with a teacher who was involved in the early CBM research. So right from the very beginning, science was a very strong contributor to the work I was doing. So initially, my work was teaching in resource rooms. Okay. Um, it was the beginning of public law 94-142, and I knew that they would need, they being the schools, would need teachers, so I went into special education and worked with children with reading difficulties right from the very beginning for a number of years, taught second grade, fifth grade, and then became the director of education at a private learning center for children and adults with dyslexia, the Lee Pesky Learning Center here in Boise, Idaho. So that then um, opened up my world even further into the science of reading and uh, was introduced to many of the researchers at the time when the National Reading Panel first published there uh, findings in 1999. I was very fortunate to uh, bring uh, the Shewitz, Louisa Moats, uh, Reed Lyon to Idaho for a conference and uh, became further immersed in the amazing things happening and helping us understand what it takes to teach reading. So education has been my life (laughs) since the very (laughs) beginning. When you think about how long I was in school, getting all the way to getting my doctorate in in education. And uh, recognized really early in my work that teachers lacked the um, products, the programs, the systematic explicit processes that would help them not only understand Um, and identify what their children needed in order to be successful readers, but to be able to teach them, to teach their students so that um, they could learn to read. The greatest gift we can give a child is the gift of reading. So it seems like you
0: sidestepped instruction in balanced literacy. Was that never given to you in any of your higher education, doctorate, or anything like that?
1: Oh, that's a really good question. Because at one point, I remember uh, sitting with a group of my friends, teacher friends. We were having coffee one morning, and we were so upset because our school district wasn't letting us teach whole language. Oh. <laughs> I mean, it was just so easy to get sucked into mm-hmm. whole language, and that's what everyone's doing. And the the heart assessment uh, of what whole language would be and opening up this world of of. The, the, the child focused, uh, which we, so we spent a real short time feeling that way because we very soon realized that whole language is not whole language. It was actually very partial language mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. because it left out some pretty important elements um, in instruction. And in order to teach it, in order for a child to read, they must be taught to read, especially the yeah. children we were working with.
0: So in all your years of working with teachers, have you been seeing that you know the balance literacy idea of three queuing and leveled books has that gotten in the way of some of the work you're trying to do, or do you feel like it creates issues that the special education teacher wouldn't normally have to see?
1: Well, I think early on, um, you know, when a small group of us worked very closely with Louisa Moats on the development of the initial letters trainings, um, and we were. So we were like a group of disciples, uh, very religious in our devotion to uh, getting the word out there. There were many years initially um, when the audience was very skeptical. Teachers were very skeptical. They wanted what they were comfortable doing. They wanted it to continue. And it was hard for them to think that there was going to have to be a change. And they were very resistant. So um, that resistance lasted for many years, and uh, as you know, Anna and your listeners know, in just the last few years, the the tide has turned. That must be exciting for you to watch. Oh, it's so exciting! And what's most exciting is those of us who have been in this for all of these years are now able able to step back, and there are so many gifted and thoughtful and smart young educators out there who are taking the reins and want to continue this movement, um, which is all to the benefit of our world, um, our children's world and our community world, our social world.
0: I agree. And it's, it is a very exciting time. And we're so thankful that so many of you are still (laughs) willing to put yourself out there and give us lots of information, still publishing books, uh, which is very helpful for people who are looking to learn this. And as you said, spread the word. Um, We're going to get into some technical stuff now. So before we press record, I said that um, when I first started learning about the science of reading, there were some words that were brand new to me, like phoneme, grapheme. Morphology was definitely one seemed a little strange, something I probably didn't have to think too much about. Now I realize how integral that is to how spelling works. So can we start off with, first of all, just some definitions. Uh, The difference, first of all, between a phoneme and a morpheme.
1: Well, both phoneme and morpheme are terms related to language. And the way we know that is because each of them ends in E-M-E, which is uh, Latin for little bit. So a phoneme is a little bit of sound. It is the smallest sound unit in uh, any spoken language. And the combination of phonemes is what gives us our words, which are morphemes. And a morpheme may be, um, is is an em, a little bit of Mm -hmm. form or meaningful form. So it's the smallest uh, form within a word that has meaning. So, for example, if we have the word Uh, seen. It has three phonemes. S, E, N. And I can use that word in a couple different ways, meaning the morpheme, the meaning of the word changes. Um, Have you seen my car keys? That is uh, the S-E-E-N. So there we have a grapheme representation as well, which is E M, the smallest unit of writing in a word. So we have uh, S-E-E-N or the graphemes. Or it was a beautiful scene at sunset last night. All of the word is the same. S-E-N from the phoneme and sound perspective, but the morphological... Um, understanding of that word, one morpheme in each of those words, but in this particular word, the scene was beautiful at sunset, um, has a different graphic, grapheme, uh, representation, but also a different meaning. Mm-hmm. And we know that, well, I could get into the graphemes, but I think we're going to talk about that a little bit later. <laughs> but the, that is a phoneme, is the speech sound, the morpheme is the smallest unit of meaning.
0: Yeah, and what's interesting is that a word can be really long and have a single morpheme, or it can be short and have multiple morphemes. Um, so, like, maybe we can talk about an, a long word that has a single morpheme, like alligator. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all one unit of meaning, but a short word, like, um, unha- I don't know, would you say unhappy?
1: Um, unhappy is two morphemes, uh, meaning not, and happy, of course, has its meaning, a feeling of joy. Okay. So So, unhappy would be three syllables and two morphemes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So how is phonemic awareness different from morphological awareness?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question, um, Anna. And um, I talk about that sometimes with teachers and helping them understand that um, phoneme awareness has been around a long time and the importance of teaching the awareness of phonemes as it relates to decoding. But we've given very little attention to morphological awareness. And that is the awareness of the meaningful forms that compose our words. It's uh, both phonemes and morphemes are part of spoken language prior to children coming to us to learn to read. So our job is to create an awareness of those components of language that will make it easier for students to learn the written system of the language that they speak. So children come to us with a knowledge that is implicit about language. They know there's an implicit knowledge that there's a difference between the two words cat and caught. They aren't aware that that difference, because they're focused on meaning, they know what a cat is and a cot is a little big, excuse me, a little bed. It's an implicit knowledge that they have about the language. And the same with morphemes. And when we listen to young children speak, their implicit knowledge of how words are composed from the morpheme perspective becomes apparent. Um, My brother, who uh, is... uh, a medical doctor and he called me yesterday morning to because he knows my field and the work I've been doing I've been talking with him about it and he called and said oh one of the young doctors came in the other morning and was so tickled that his 4-year-old said in the kitchen that night before my mom is a cooker and my dad is a cooker <laughs> and and, the, <laughs> and that's a that's a really good example of mm-hmm. that morphological implicit knowledge You know, one who teaches is a teacher, one who farms is a farmer, one who cooks is a cooker. You Mm -hmm. know, it just makes sense. So ER, then when we create awareness of the morphemes, we teach children that that means one who or that which, because a cooker could be a pot. You know, we'll have a cooker on the stove here, this pot, Uh uh-huh. And that would be, or, or a stove is a cooker, perhaps. I think that's not really common in our use of that word here in the in the uh, in the States. But that's that which cooks. And a person would be one who cooks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that, that knowledge is implicit. And there's no reason to bring an awareness to the phonemes or the morphemes to create that awareness unless okay. we are teaching reading. Because that is... Is critical to word recognition, especially as children get older and the number of multisyllabic, multimorphemic words increases in the written language.
0: Yeah, I think my favorite story about that was when my my youngest—he's in second grade now—but when he was about four, he came in and hung his swimsuit on the rack, and he said, "I hanged my swimsuit on the rack." And I said, "Oh, you hung it?" And he said, "Yes, it's hanging." <laughs> Um, <laughs> so he do the morphemes didn't know the base but it was pretty funny um and I know that that's so fun for parents as their kids are starting to talk and all the funny ways that they change words into past tense or things like that and all the things that they mm-hmm. kind of approximate
1: I told a story about my uh, three-year-old grandson when he his- creativity with words. After eating crackers off of his soup, he said, I uncrackered my soup, (laughs) you know, which is adding a prefix, making cracker past tense. I mean, it's pretty amazing. And a teacher reflected to me uh, how we celebrate a young child's Temporary or inventive spelling when they're learning the grapheme phoneme relationships, but we've she wasn't aware that we ever celebrate truly understand what's happening when a child is using that temporary language and experimenting with morphemes, because what an amazing acquisition. I mean, that's just such a beautiful representation of that biological language brain we have yeah. that in a, in a world where we're spoken to, we're read to, we are into, we're be- building that implicit knowledge about the construction of words.
0: Yeah, yeah. Very interesting to think about. So as you said, they don't have to have morphological awareness to understand how to speak. Um, or to start applying it in different in different ways, but as they're reading and spelling, especially, we need to be able to we need to teach morphology. So, maybe first thing is why is it important for teachers to understand morphology?
1: Well, you have to understand something to teach it, you know. on Bottom line, and a lot of uh, te- many teachers have shared with me that they don't feel comfortable in their own understanding and morphology based upon their ability to know the meanings of every prefix, every suffix, every root. Yeah, And let me just point out right here, none of us ever know the meanings of every prefix, suffix, and root. And awareness is on a continuum. So you can be aware of prefixes and suffixes and it helps you read words and it helps you understand their meanings. And as we grow along these continuum, this continuum of awareness, when we are teaching prefixes and suffixes and roots, we are learning the meanings of those right along with our students. Yes. So that's one of the reasons I've been dedicated to this development of materials for teachers is to help build their own confidence in their understanding of what morphological awareness truly means and uh, are developing their knowledge of the meanings of those morphemes as they teach them.
0: That is very good to hear because I think it becomes very overwhelming, especially when you watch a presentation with someone talking about morphology and they're breaking the word apart and you're like, I didn't know any of those things. Like how can I teach my students? But to know that you don't have to know it all to get started. And that's, you just have to be that's a step right. ahead.
1: And that's, cool. that's right. Absolutely. So- yeah. And it's important for teachers to understand morphology so that they can teach it because there is so much research out there that and we keep getting more research too that supports the need for teaching morphological awareness um, even in kindergarten the, um, Im- the implicit um, knowledge that children have about words can be brought to their attention through the phoneme and the morpheme, as we prepare them to learn to decode, and early morphological knowledge and awareness is uh, shares a relationship with future literate literacy, the ability to decode and comprehend.
0: Yeah. And it all comes down to understanding that we have a morphophonemic language and not just phonemic. Um, mm-hmm. I know one of my, I remember doing this when I was a kid and one of my teenagers likes to do this. He'll just take words and say, well, if it was pronounced the way it was supposed to, and he'd, like say the word tripped, it would be t-r-i-p-p-e-d. But of course it's not supposed to be um, pronounced that way because that's not how English works. It's not a one-to-one for phonemes and the E-D has a has a purpose in there. So that's the point of this, to help our students realize that more goes into spelling than just one-to-one matching of sounds, phonemes, and graphemes. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's why maybe we can talk a little bit about why morphological awareness is so important for spelling.
1: Yeah. And let me just add one more point to what we were just talking about as well. Teaching morphological awareness is not new. Mm -hmm. Um, Anna, you shared early on, that was something you weren't aware of in, in your early preparation for teaching. When I did, um, Uh, a lot of work for the National Council on Teacher Quality and reviewed texts Mm -hmm. that were being used for preparing teachers to learn to read. Morphology was always there in those textbooks, but very surface. Okay. And just lists of prefixes and suffixes to teach without really helping teachers understand what the awareness of morphemes meant. We have always Mm -hmm. taught ED as a uh, mm-hmm. Past tense, right? When our mm-hmm. spelling was, well, I wouldn't say all of us ever did, but it's always mm-hmm. been there to teach. Mm-hmm. The, um, and, and a lot of the morphological awareness that we have is something we intuited ourselves. We weren't taught directly. Yes. So it's in that way it's a lot like phoneme awareness and before we taught explicitly phoneme awareness there were some children who just intuited that these these phonemes were sounds that we connected to letters without having being taught explicitly. And the same has been with morphological awareness. So it, a lot of this just intuited about the language and we can't take a chance that kids are going to figure it out themselves. And they benefit a lot from um, morphological instruction. One of the benefits is children become curious about words and they become excited about words and they start asking questions and wondering, is that a root? What does it mean? Does this word have a prefix on it? Is that a prefix in this word? Those are the kinds of questions we want children to ask because the basic Premise of building a long-term memory for something is spending time thinking about it. We remember what we think about, and so giving opportunities to children to think about words along these lines is um, is a builds a rich language classroom.
0: Well, and it's it's very fun as an adult to figure all this out too, because I was reading beneath the surface of words the other day by um, I'm not going to say her let her name right Sue Zabeta. Haglund? Yeah, that's how you say it. Um, and uh, she was talking about the root cave and how it's in words like cavity. And I'm like, I never thought about that before. And so I said to my teenagers who were sitting on the couch, like, have you ever thought about that? That cave is related to the word cavity? Why do you think that is? And we talked about it. And then just at that very moment, my fourth grader was doing some homework and she had to write the word militia. And she, I don't know how to spell it. I said, well, actually, and I wrote the word military. I said, it's a lot like it has to do with military. Now can you figure it out? And she could. And um, it's, it's just so much fun. The more you learn about it as an adult, the more it opens up the conversations you can have with kids and the same is true for them. And that is that little example I gave, of course, shows how important it is for spelling because so many words you might just guess and not know because there's a silent letter. But when you can connect it like um, sign and signal, those silent letters mm-hmm. are pronounced in other versions of the word. So can you speak to more about, about how it uh, affects spelling?
1: Yeah. Well, Anna, you've already pointed out that uh, the English orthography is morphophonemic, which means the spelling of the words is based on the morpheme and the phoneme. And uh, both together are what can be used to explain the spellings of so many of our English words, which you just gave a beautiful example of military and militia, and how nice you had that knowledge that you could share with your, your daughter. It, you know, English, the, the awareness helps us spell because, um, and, and I think it's best to explain this through examples, and military militia was one of them, but at a simpler form too. <clears throat> Ken Oppel, who has given us a lot of our research on um, morphology, uh, points out that the strongest research uh, in terms of outcomes is when kids know the prefixes and suffixes, that we, they really apply that knowledge. So if we have the word irregular, for example, if I'm aware that ir- um, um, irregular begins with a prefix, I-N, which has to change its form to I-R, I will know I have to double the R in irregular. Because I have a prefix unit that must stand alone, I-R, and I have my um, my root regular. Mm-hmm. So, or actually it's R-E-G. So, but that those two R's together, an R at the beginning of my root and an R at the end of my suffix means I have to double it. So those are the kinds of... of um, uh, that, that is an example of the of bringing knowledge to the English orthography to help us explain the spellings, and we don't have to memorize lots of spellings, but we have that um, basis in phonomorphemic um, knowledge to, and, and awareness to help us.
0: Yeah, and we go back to a very, very basic example for kids learning to spell the word jumped, and they spell a J-U-M-P-T, understanding that um, even though it sounds like t- there's the the ed is the
1: morphological. That's right. Yeah. Another really good example in the spelling is, um, and uh, Doris Johnson, who was an early researcher, um, used these examples, gave us several examples of if we can recall the spelling of the root in another word form, it will help us spell other words within that family. For example, if you have the word medicine, and you hear that s in there, medicine, that we know to spell that with a C because the root is medic, which means health, and then work with students to develop other words that would fit within that family. So we have medic, we have medicine, we have medicinal, Mm -hmm. you know, and those are all words that relate to health in some way, and also word forms. Oh, and you know, another point about morphology, and I've had teachers reflect this to me who have my program, Morphine Magic, I never realized that the part of speech was so important. Mm-hmm. You know the morpheme mm-hmm. when you add suffixes to words you get you change the the part of yeah. speech and how that word will fit within a sentence. Mm-hmm. So syntax becomes a huge another piece of the puzzle when you're teaching morphological awareness because how yeah. do what do these words sound like in sentences and it's dependent on how that part of speech will play out.
0: So teachers are hearing this and knowing that morphology is important and they, they have a, maybe a base understanding a little bit, um, but they're wondering, well, where do I get started? Is there a, and I always tell people there's no research-based phonics scope and sequence. We just have a general idea of simple to complex. Is the same true for morphology and do you have sort of a suggested sequence for teachers?
1: You know, you hit the nail on the head because <laughs> you're right. There is no one true phonics scope and sequence that has shown and proven to give stronger results. But what does give the results is the most common are taught first. So it's a common sense that we're applying. Holly Lane has done, recognized this and that there was no research that showed this this is the set of prefixes or suffixes or roots that need to be taught first. So what she did is went into the, she and her colleagues went into the um, content area and subject areas and to study on the most common prefixes, suffixes, and roots that occur within these different subject areas, just to give teachers the uh, basis from which to develop their morphological awareness instruction, starting with the most common and working through. So at the same time that we're teaching these prefixes, suffixes, roots from the most common working to the less common, Kids are reading and reading a lot, and they're coming across other affixes and roots. And so, if we have a language-rich, morphological, morphologically-rich classroom going, these kids are going to be learning these through their uh, their questioning because they have this awareness um, that that we have helped to uh, to light a little fire under in in uh, their language reading brains. Uh, so. That's another uh, constraint about phonics and teaching the the grapheme, phoneme elements is that there, there's an end to what they will learn in yeah, their exactly application. <laughs> but with morphology, there isn't.
0: Right. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking about that's the difference between phonemic awareness and morpho- morphological awareness, too. Like phonemic awareness, you kind of get it eventually. But morphological awareness, like you said, it's on a continuum and it's constantly... Um, throughout your life and i think some things you mentioned there too like it's important to do this explicit instruction morphology which we, your books will help teachers do but also being ready to teach it when it comes up like when my daughter had the question about military and militia yeah. um, um, so and the more a teacher knows about that the more prepared they are and there's also so many great online resources right like Edum online where if, if a student has a question the teacher could let me check this real quick and you can both expand your knowledge at once exactly your first book was uh, Morpheme Magic, and then I don't know how many years later it was that you did Morphemes for Little Ones. But you started out by sharing it as a resource for um, grades four to twelve, and then your second book was about teaching it in the primary grades. Can you talk about the difference? Maybe start with the primary and, and how you think it should begin, and is it how will it change as you move into the middle grades?
1: At the early grades, we're focused on building language that will prepare students for the reading demands, and part of that is morphemes and morphology. And when we look at the components of language, teaching morphology fits very, very, very nicely into our teaching of vocabulary, orthography, phonology, syntax, what these words sound like within sentences. So the K through three program is very heavily focused on language. That's why the subtitle is uh, Bringing the Magic of Language into K 3 Classrooms. Okay. So, in the kindergarten, the level one lessons are through oral and spoken language. We create building, um, we begin building attention and awareness of the phonemes in words that are going to help them read those words. they start with plurals and past tense. What sound do you hear at the end of the word? This is how you spell it. And this is how we use the word and connecting it to classroom experiences. And then in the level three, there's a lot more explicit instruction of the orthography of the prefixes and suffixes. So that program prepares teacher, prepares students for them the, uh, richer or deeper morphological lessons in morpheme magic. But it's very language rich. And, and having another program, teachers don't need another program in K3. They're just beginning to learn how to how to teach decoding, right? In phonics. Mm-hmm. So uh, I make a very strong point of this morphemes for little ones is, is to help you incorporate this in the instruction you're already providing in your phonics and decoding lessons. which of the words in your decoding words this week are verbs that you can add ing to and teach the doubling rule, Mm -hmm. you know? So there's a a way to enrich the the lessons in the programs children or teachers are using um, through the lessons in the program.
0: Do you have a general idea in your mind of about when it's, when you think it's optimal, the optimal time to start explicitly teaching roots like Greek and Latin roots to kids?
1: Well, Um, I think it begins with teaching the Anglo-Saxon. Those are the most common words in a children's spoken language and also the first words children learn to decode. So teaching that that is a base, that is a stem, we could use the term stem if we want, upon which we can add prefixes and suffixes to build new words. Mm -hmm. And then those early Latin roots like act or sign, as you put it, those actually are Roots, but they have become free in our spoken language as well. It can stand alone, so that's a very good beginning. So words that have "ct" in them are all are Latin. Those are based in the Latin, and there are several words we use that act, which we can make react or action or active. We can build a wonderful family around that simple word that children can decode early on. But the the introduction of the common Latin roots like uh, fur, for example, which means to bear. Those are going to be introduced once children are consolidated readers, when they're beginning to recognize chunks within words to help them read unfamiliar words. And they know that when they see the word react, for example, that E-A in there is not a vowel team. We don't say reeked, Mm -hmm. but they recognize that act is a base. So that means this re, which I know from review, and refer, and other words that start with re, is a separate unit. So knowing your students' phase of word recognition, Lene Aries' phases of word recognition, once our children are consolidated or moving into that consolidated phase, they're coming across all of a sudden thousands of words that they have not seen in print before. And that morphological awareness helps them with the uh, recognition of that word, and they're also then ready to begin learning. In fact, it's fourth grade. Pretty much in the research, you'll see this. Fourth grade children are early beginning. They're ready to start learning those um, Latin roots. In third grade, they're they're definitely, in Morphemes for Little Ones, the third grade text, I do introduce, uh, begin to introduce Latin roots.
0: Okay. So... um if a teacher is interested in checking out one of your um, books, which also separately, they, you can buy a set of cards that go with each book um, mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. that you can post and use as a teaching tool. What, what might they expect? Like in the primary, and first of all, Morphemes for Little Ones, you talked about how the, the kindergarten is more focused on oral language. As it moves through, if a teacher, uh, we're going to use one of the lessons, like what, how does it lay out?
1: Okay, well, the introduction, there is a target morpheme. So there's a scope and sequence. And at the beginning of the lesson, we introduce uh, a keyword that has that uh, is representative of the target morpheme through the phoneme. So we say the word. What are the phonemes? And then, if the children are decoding, we present the orthographic component of the word to read it, and then use the word in sentences orally. And then we teach the decoding of several words that. could uh, contain that target morpheme um, and not only decode them, but use them in oral sentences. And then we write always decoding followed by encoding so that there's always a spelling component that is included in the decoding. And then throughout the week, we uh, create a a morpheme lexicon or a, a vocabulary book that we're creating where we gather the morphemes as we learn them. Mm -hmm. Uh, word items that are representative of that morpheme, writing sentences uh, using and and not just write a sentence using this word, but it's giving the students the word, talking about how that word could be used to reflect on a character in a book we're reading Mm -hmm. or um, the speaker we had, the guest speaker we had come in yesterday or the social studies, or our community circle, what we talked about this morning. So always connecting this to a conversation about what we are learning is um, really key to the, the work that we do um, in this morphological awareness arena. So uh, lots of review is needed.
0: Mm-hmm. So um, just like when you're teaching new vocabulary words, you don't want to just um, teach it and forget about it. You want to weave it as much as you can put it in front of yourself so you remember to address it and bring it up during the school week.
1: Right. And that's one reason why I developed the visuals too the cards for in morphemes for little ones are to build the oral language. So they're a very stimulating picture. Teacher presents a a sentence in reflecting the picture and engages children in deeper conversation about the picture using words that have the, the target morpheme. And uh, those then can be posted on a wall or examples of what a morpheme wall might look like mm-hmm. in my um, book and also on the Facebook group page, just to give teachers an idea of first of all the purpose. It keeps it in my the teacher's frame of mind to bring up and refer to, and it gives the children something to refer to also to remind them, and the same with the morpheme magic.
0: So does the Morphe Magic follow a pretty similar lesson sequence as the one for the lower grades?
1: Yes, it does. Um, Mm -hmm. Um, Only in Morphe Magic, I created the connect passages. So there is context stories that I wrote that uh, are contextual that uh, students use the focus words to uh, fill in and complete the story. And it's really important when using those that teachers talk through the story and the meanings of the words in, within each sentence uh, the first time through to uh, to to really build a substantial understanding of how this word can be used.
0: That was, um, so I was recently at the Wisconsin Reading League event and someone, uh, is it, is it uh, Michelle Aaliyah, is that correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So from your, from your team, I think yes. uh-huh. um, she, she gave a wonderful, <laughs> very funny, if morphology could be funny, she gave a funny presentation and she talked about the sentences in your book. And I, I have the books. I, I did not notice that initially that with these little passages you have with the underlines, the idea is not to use it as a quiz. Um, you're trying to, you have the words in order and you want kids to, when the blank comes, they fill in the next word. So it's a, it's a teaching tool. It's not a testing tool. I thought that was yeah. really interesting.
1: Yeah. It's not a guessing game. <laughs> no guessing, please.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that's great because you're giving them that, you're showing them how to use the words in context and not just in a sentence, but in a paragraph. Yeah. So thank you so much for, for sharing so much about morphology. I know people are going to want to learn a lot more and I'll definitely link to all your resources, but I know you've done so many other things. Can you talk to us a little bit about some other projects that you've done or, or working on?
1: Uh, yeah. Especially for Morphe Magic in the intermediate grades, middle school being used in um, secondary uh, intervention. Teachers clamored and just begged me for assessments. And if I wasn't going to give them to them, they were going to make up their own assessments. And yeah, I know you got to give kids a grade, but I, I just really, was very resistant, but began to recognize that assessments could be very beneficial and could be a teaching tool, not just for the students, but for the teachers as well. Mm-hmm. So I, I committed to creating these assessments and I'm apologizing to everyone who's listening who waited and waited and waited. <laughs> I finally got them done and yes, they are published and based the assessments in everything I could find about assessing vocabulary and morphology. So there is a proximal level of meaning that is assessed and also a distal. And the distal form of assessment consists of questions you ask that take children into a whole nother context to determine whether or not they understand the meaning of that word. And what I became very aware of in my work uh, when I shared it with a famous vocabulary researcher, maddie McCowan, she yes was quite perplexed with the way I was developing these assessments and said it's the base of the word that carries the most meaning. So the assessment I had shared with her was one based on a prefix. So I also then took that to heart and built into the assessments, make sure the children recognize and know and can recognize what is the base and what is the prefix and suffix because the base carries the critical meaning and then is uh, modified by the prefixes or suffixes that are added to it. And questions that we ask, uh, for example, if the word is transparent, trans meaning across, parent meaning to see, to see a, to a light coming across, would a question um, to determine a deeper level meaning might be, why would it be unwise to have a transparent backpack? Mm-hmm i know you're thinking right now but these are the kinds of questions i want teachers to learn to ask in any vocabulary assessment not even assessment that you're taking a grade on but just that teaching assessment we do like who really gets this word i'm going to ask this question so i tell teachers look at the assessment that you're going to give at the end of the week read through what we're asking students to, to know and to show us they know and how and think to yourselves, how can you incorporate the content of that assessment during your teaching this week? Mm-hmm. You know, so the assessments are giving teachers another teaching tool.
0: Yeah, that, is, I that hope is
1: brilliant. That, that way.
0: Yeah, that's wonderful because, like you said, your book does that. And teachers that are coming in, not knowing much about morphology, they learn it as they teach it, and to know that the assessment can also be useful. Are the assessments sold separately somewhere? Where would teachers find those? Well, yes,
1: they're in the second edition of Morphe Magic. If you've never bought oh, the second edition, before, okay. it's it's in the second edition. That's the only change I made to the, okay. to the book. But there are thousands out there that have the first edition book, but not the assessments. So the assessments are also sold separately. Okay, wonderful. I'll link to those for sure. Um, Tell me about a little bit real quickly about the book
0: that you just... uh, Oh, yes.
1: Next Steps in Language and Literacy. Yes. uh, Using assessments to diagnose and uh, plan instruction. So it's our second edition and we've updated it and it's based on a assist, uh, uh, the outcomes driven model, so that goes back way back to Good and uh, Kaminsky's work uh, with Dibbles years and years ago. But the outcome driven model that we follow is a, a very common model, but one that many schools have never implemented. But when we have a good benchmark assessment, that helps us identify the children at risk. The next step, once we identify them, is to diagnose. What is the issue here and once we have that then we meet collaboratively with other teachers we determine small groups from those needs and uh, focus attention uh, and uh, instruction to the identified diagnostic need those students have start them in their small groups progress monitor monitor their their progress uh, to determine how well students are responding to the instruction Make any changes that need to be made and continue in the cycle of instruction and monitoring the progress, um, making changes as we need and as we see in group composition, in um, instructional uh, focus, uh, continuing as we're doing because students are making gains until the next benchmark period when we identify again those who continue to be at risk further diagnose. Um, anyway, so this this book is built upon that outcome-driven model with lots of ideas and uh, structure for the small group instruction.
0: Yeah, well, that is wonderful because teachers really are looking for that. Um, they, mm-hmm. they, I know many teachers are doing the, or not every school, but some schools are starting to do those screeners more, but the teachers aren't sure what to do with it afterwards. And yeah, so that's, that's wonderful. Yeah.
1: They're just learning. You know yeah. this is and how there's a welcoming environment out there now and a, a desperate need, uh, uh, and uh, for this information. And what's so beautiful too is the leaders in the schools. Not only the teachers; teachers are leaders as well, but those administrative positions that are making the decisions now are looking for the products and the tools that are backed by the research that they can bring in and provide for their teachers, knowing that this is, this is effective stuff. Now let's yeah. support you in your application of this.
0: So are there any other projects in the works that you're willing to talk about?
1: No, I don't have any projects right now. I told my <laughs> husband after this last book, I was going to take a break. However, <laughs> I do have some children's books, uh, kind of Percolating in my oh, mind. Oh, really? How wonderful! I huh. and I know um, a, a couple beautiful, a wonderful illustrators, and so I'm. That's that's i kind of thinking about doing something a little bit different, but at the same time, those texts, those books would be building vocabulary for their listeners.
0: Yeah. So something <laughs> for your grandkids.
1: <laughs> yeah, that would be exciting. Oh,
0: well, thank you so much. I could talk to you all day, but um, thank you so much for your long career of helping teachers and that you continue to do that. And um, your work is appreciated by so many people.
1: Thank you, Anna. It was a pleasure. And I just wish all of you out there listening the best in the world of morphological awareness and uh, just would love to hear from you anytime if you have questions or uh, would like to talk about morphology.
0: Oh, I'm sure they would. We'll put your you'll put we'll put your contact information in the show notes. You'll probably get people to take you up on that.
1: Thank you, Anna. You can find the
0: show notes for today's episode at themeasuredmom.com/episode150. Talk to you next time. That's all for this episode of Triple R Teaching. For more educational resources, visit Anna at her home base, themeasuredmom.com, and join our teaching community. We look forward to helping you reflect, refine, and recharge on the next episode of Triple R Teaching.